Hi, everyone. I'm Delilah Jones, and you're listening to Imagine Publicity on Air, where a variety of guests just kind of stop by for conversations. I get to talk to authors, activists, and artists, and intersperse with some occasional marketing tips for business, uh, individuals, authors, nonprofits. And you can connect with me through imaginepublicity.com or any of the social media platforms. So today, let's board a train and travel across the U.S. Now, not an Amtrak. We're taking a trip back to the 1800s, so we need to be prepared for a dusty, bumpy ride. So imagine yourself as the crime reporter of the day, publishing the latest information about the most gruesome crimes of the time. True Crime Chronicles, Volumes 1 and 2, published by my partner, Wild Blue Press, is a collection of news articles representing the most colorful crime stories of the day. Author Mike Rothmiller curated these works of journalism and astonishing stories that will take the reader back when these horrific tales mesmerized our nation. So welcome, welcome aboard, Mike. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, you have an incredible background and with several professional twists and turns. And can you tell us some of the highlights of, of what you've done with, uh, with your background? Sure. Um, basically, I started out when I was very young, 21. I was a police officer in Los Angeles, and I, I spent 10 years as a cop there, and I worked uh, patrol. I was a patrol training officer. I worked undercover vice uh, for 18 months and around uh, Dodger Stadium and then in Hollywood. And I went to the organized crime unit, and I was a detective working deep cover organized crime for five years, and primarily what we worked on is gathering intelligence back then on the traditional mafia, on some terrorist groups, and on political corruption. Uh, and so there was a, always a close tie between politicians and the mafia, uh, no matter what anybody says. It was very close. And that spanned the entire globe. We didn't stick to L.A. We were gathering intelligence everywhere. And uh, as an example, I, I was tasked before the L.A. Olympics. I went to Mexico City and met with the commanding general of Mexico's federales to set up an intelligence net because we knew and they knew there were some terrorists coming up from South America to hit the L.A. games. So... We wanted to prevent that, and we wanted to stop them when they got into Mexico. So we set up that that net um, after LAPD. I became a TV reporter, and then I became a uh, exec producer and host of some programming on ESPN and PBS. And I retired early, and along the line, I was writing books. I had New York Times bestseller and so forth, and then. Uh, Having retired too early and becoming bored, uh, I was offered a senior position for Sony Electronics, and I took that, and I headed three divisions, government, media, and public relations for the Western Hemisphere, and that meant that I dealt with politicians one-on-one. I had a brief, Bill Clinton, when he was president, I met with him, 
and I had to meet uh, and brief governors, senators, congress members, foreign diplomats, military leaders, and so forth. And so that was pretty much my career as I've gone through time and uh, finally decided to retire and uh, just focus on writing books and along the line I, I do other things too, volunteer work and so forth. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, you have several books published, um, don't you? This this is not your first rodeo. No, no. It's up to, I think, 27 now, 26, 27, right around there. And primarily nonfiction, because I enjoy the research of nonfiction. And uh, a couple of books, one's been a New York Times bestseller, and another one uh, came out, well, it was about three, no, four years ago, that was featured on Fox News and every place else because it was 85 secrets the federal government doesn't want you to know. <laughs> and it went back to Abraham Lincoln and so forth and such things as the number of atomic weapons that have been lost, primarily from the Air Force. Uh, they accidentally dropped them at sea or someplace else, and they've never recovered them. So it was things like that. And uh, those tend to really grab people's attention, especially the last one on that was called Secret Lies and Deception, Volume 2. And I had the um, emails, a lot of Hillary Clinton's emails, which kind of vanished, but I was able to get some, and uh, had to deal with why we actually, us and other countries, invaded Libya. And uh, it's a true eye-opener when you read it, what the real reason was. But uh, So that that's my focus, I'd say, in true crime and so forth. Well, we may we may have to do a completely other show on that book because I think that sounds quite intriguing. But what what was the inspiration? I, you know, we went through all of this. Was there something in your background, something in, you know, previous jobs or positions that you held that was the inspiration for creating True Crime Chronicles? Well, part of it was um, my background as a cop and a detective. And I've always enjoyed trying to put the pieces of a puzzle together that never quite fit, or you may be short a piece of the puzzle, but you can put the entire picture together. And so what happened was uh, with this, these two volumes, I was uh, researching another book, and I was into the various archives, and I started finding fascinating stories from the 1800s and some into the 1700s in England uh, regarding serial killers, um, lynchings, witches, uh, how they were treated or who they thought were witches, and then other stories that really changed history as far as I knew. Like I thought I knew about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, like 99% of the people. You've seen the movies, you've seen the TV shows, you've heard the story. It's all about the OK Corral and so forth. Well, it's not quite that. Uh, they actually had a, a criminal side. They were active criminals <laughs> the whole time they were together. And so I found the stories about that and how they were run out of several towns. And so I, I was just fascinated. I said, well, this changes history as far as I knew it, as far as maybe my friends knew it. So I just kept digging and digging and digging and came up with, loads of information about uh, old West gangs and so forth that people probably heard of. And that's like, 
the Dalton gang and so forth, and uh, Wyatt Earp and his family, uh, old stories about the the Black Hand. The Black Hand was the forerunner of the Mafia back in the late 1800s in New York and on the East Coast, and stories about them. And so I was just fascinated by it, um, all these stories, and I kept digging in regarding, say, Jack the Ripper and Whitechapel, those murders, and that led me to other serial killers, uh, vicious serial killers in the United States and uh, in other countries. So that's what I did. I just started pulling these stories, and I was just so fascinated by them. Um, I contacted Wild Blue, and I, I said, Steve, uh, here are these stories. They're, they're wonderful. And I relayed a few, so he says, they are wonderful. Let's do it. You know, so that's how the book came about, or both volumes. Well, in in doing this research and reading through the the journalist um, recounting, I guess of of all of these cases, talk a little bit about maybe comparing what crime reporting was like back then compared to what it's like today, and maybe the evolution of today's crime, true crime popularity, and and maybe it's not as big as it was back then i think you know they had much less to do as far as entertainment went so crime seemed to be <laughs> the thing to do on saturday night yes well it's kind of interesting because i come from the background of being a cop and seeing the news media come out to crime scenes and you know calling for interviews and questions and so i've been on both sides and uh what i truly notice is that when in modern day say today, the reporters are not allowed into the crime scene. The police set up, if there's a shooting or whatever, that you'll see the yellow tape around the area, and the police will not allow people into the crime scene uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but also what they do is they hold back information. For instance, if you have a serial killer and they have a very unique method of killing the person, and perhaps... Uh, they'll leave a mark on the body, uh, initials or something. That is never released to the public because you want to have that information in reserve. If somebody comes forward and says, hey, I'm the killer. Oh, really? Well, tell me what you did with the body. And then if these, the person comes forward and says, well, I made these initials on the thigh, then you go, wait a minute, this person really knows what they're talking about. So th there's a difference. A lot of information is held back now or has been for years. What I found with these stories, um, they held back nothing. I mean, the language they used is, would be today politically incorrect, could not be written. And also what happened many, many times on serial killers and so forth is that the reporter would get the call pretty much the same time as the police would. And the detectives, they would go with the detective to the scene and walk through the crime scene with the detective. And they were right there, right in the middle of it, and they wrote in great detail about what they saw and what happened to the victims. And um, it's just truly amazing when you read this, you say, my God, how did they get away with it? Well, they got away because that's the standard of the media at the time. And that's what people expected, and that's what people wanted. And so... 
as you know today, the more salacious the story, the more coverage it receives. And at the time, the only news were newspapers, and there were thousands of them in the country at that time. And so they were all competing against each other. And so it turns out, it appears that the more grisly details they gave, the more scandalous the story, um, the more readers, which meant selling more newspapers. And so when you read these stories, they're just very, very well detailed. They get into, if you want to say, the gore of the stories. That, you know, for instance, it says, the guy hit her in the head with an axe and splattered her brains all over the room. You're not going to see that in today's newspapers. And uh, so that's how they wrote. They were very graphic, very detailed. And in some cases, I have one uh, in the books where the cops, basically, they lied and they framed the guy for murder. Uh, And it was, fortunately, the newspaper reporters who were there at the time in the middle of the crime scene uh, they start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, what this cop said in court did not happen. And so because of what they did, the governor pardoned this fellow and let him out of prison because the cops originally thought for what the crime at the time, he would have been hung for sure and said he was given a life sentence, fortunately, and he was released from prison. He was completely innocent, but the cops framed him. So you don't have a, a lot of that today, but you still do. And what you see in these stories is that <clears throat> police and the media, they're kind of doing the same thing today that they did back then, but very limited as far as what is told to the public. So that's what, is, what really fascinated me about these stories, reading them. They were so well detailed. And uh, I was shocked as a former cop. said, my God, if they put this in the paper, the cops let him say this, the, you know, as far as they let him into the crime scene and so forth. So it, it really takes you back to a time uh, that the media was completely different. They weren't uh, held back in any fashion. They weren't worried about political correctness, as you see from the terms they used in these stories uh, regarding Hispanics and African-Americans and so forth. Um, and they drive the point home, whatever that point was for those stories. It's just truly fascinating how, how it was done. And then what you'll also have see crime, is that... I'm sorry. They didn't have crime scene photographers either. So you, you also no. see the evolution where, you know, I would imagine a sketch artist maybe went with the reporter to sketch yes. all the guard details. And then, then we went into the crime scene reporters with the photographers and and now we we have smartphones doing the same thing that's right that's right and many of the articles though they they couldn't put them in uh the sketch artist from the time into the book but they have images of these people that were drawn at the time by their people and uh, some of them are very graphic the images that they drew and uh, it was, like I said, at that time, that was the only news source available in the country. And so that was TV, radio, podcasts. Everything combined was in the newspapers. And uh, these stories literally mesmerized the country and fascinated them. And the other thing that you'll see is how the newspapers uh, 
viewed Hispanics and his and uh, African Americans at the time. What they said, and especially Native Americans, um, they pretty much saw Native Americans as uh, just some sort of rabid animal that needed to be exterminated. And one quick example of that in the book, I have the story and. President Lincoln ordered the hanging of 37 Sioux Indians. And uh, what happened, right at the beginning of the Civil War, there's some issues with the Sioux. Uh, The whites were coming in, killing all their game and so forth. And so there was a fight one day. Some whites were killed, and this started almost a war between the various Indian nations. And so Lincoln wanted to crush it before it started, and he ordered this general to go in there, which he did, and they rounded up uh, about 440, 450 of these Sioux warriors who they thought were involved in these attacks on various settlers. So they had a tribunal, a military tribunal of all these guys. Now, you got to remember, here you have four, 400 people on trial for murder. All of the trials took about a week total. Some trials lasted minutes. They said, what's your name? Okay, yeah, we think you're guilty. Execution. And that's how fast some of the trials were. So to Lincoln, Lincoln said, no, 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 no. I I can't have 400 Native Americans executed, you know, just like that during the Civil War. It's wrong, and it's not going to go over well. So he had them narrow it down. He said, "Just let's just hang the guys who raped white women and so they came back they they had four names and then lincoln said no we can't just hang four people we got them we have to make it uh heavy enough as far as the execution and the punishment that it will deter some of these tribes so he got a list and came up 36 names 37 names okay you can hang these guys and they take him out they put up the uh scaffolding and everything and the general just starts calling off the names of these Indian names, and he couldn't pronounce them well. So these guys walk up on the scaffolding and uh, hanging in the noose. They put the noose over the head, and they hang all 37 at one time. Well, as it turns out, two of them were innocent kids. They heard this guy call a name, and they thought it was their name because he mispronounced it. And so they just walked up, and they were hung. Um, but anyway, that's, it was the largest mass execution in American history, yet the largest article in the newspaper was two sentences long. That tells you how they viewed American, you know, Native Americans at the time. Hanging 37 guys at one time and two boys by mistake, it was only two sentences. And that's the atrocity. Well, didn't it, it wasn't is. that it incident? Um, didn't that precipitate the battle at Wounded Knee? Wasn't that either well, right that after came, that incident? That, that that came afterwards, but uh, right. there were many, many, if you want to say, battles or executions that occurred. You know, just slaughtering right. that happened uh, some before and a lot afterwards during the Indian Wars. Um, so. It, it certainly was in the background because they were starting to go into what's called snake dancing and so forth. And mm-hmm. 
the military didn't like that, and they said, well, this is horrible. And uh, that's when they end up killing uh, oh, Sitting Bull and so forth, taking him into custody and killing him. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just phenomenal when you read the story. You say, wait a minute. The largest mass execution in U.S. history, ordered by the president, Abraham Lincoln, and it gets two sentences in a, in a local newspaper. Yeah, that that is wrong. But speaking of Lincoln, in in volume two, you you covered uh, the assassination, and and what I found that I didn't really realize was that there were a lot of co-conspirators behind John Wilkes Booth. He wasn't just the lone gunman, so to speak. Can you elaborate on on that and what happened? Well. Yeah, there were uh, other, it appears to be, from all the articles that were written and that I read, that there were other people involved, but they weren't, they weren't placed on trial for whatever reason. Um, and then some were just given, not the death sentence, but uh, some term in prison and so forth. But it, it opens up history. It, it gives you a different perspective because... These people, these reporters, were there at the time it was occurring. So they are the best source of information, not what some historian writes 100 years later or longer. Um, they're just saying the facts as they receive them and as they knew them in real time. And the way those stories go down in, in Volume 1 and then uh, Volume 2, I've Lincoln uh, assassinated the other president assassinated. It's just that it gives a timeline uh, of things going on and how things were occurring, the wounds and how the president was reacting and dying and so forth. It's almost a minute-by-minute minute account of the president dying. And so it's, it's very interesting when you, you look at that, it changes your perspective on history from what the vast majority of people know as history. Um, and so you start saying, well, wait a minute. I don't remember this part. I don't remember that part. Uh, this changes my overall view of the Lincoln assassination and some other ones. And uh, like the the Wyatt Earp family, they're criminals too, and it changes your view of history. So it's it's just fascinating, and that's what part of it. What fascinated me going through all these stories. It definitely it definitely sets you back when you start thinking about what things were actually learned in history class. And I'm I'm like you, so much I have read since graduating has educated myself even more so, and not always in a positive light, unfortunately. So, and I think you know even even today. You know, as things unfold, there's a historical context to a lot of the issues that we're experiencing today. And yes. if we don't look back at the truth of history, then we're, again, doomed to repeat it and not learn the lessons. And it just continues to perpetuate the things, uh, whether about ourselves or about our country, that we don't like. Exactly. So, yes, I, I I really think that that is probably one of the surprising uh, positive things that I came away from reading your books was the fact that, yes, there were so many uh, 
things, you know, things out there that I didn't know that historically I didn't know. And it does. It makes you sit back and, and take another look. Well, it, it does. And uh, there are things, for instance, I, uh, I have a writing partner, another book regarding Marilyn Monroe that's coming out in October. But uh, the guy I was writing with is English. And he's written many, many books uh, about celebrities and so forth. And I asked him one day, I said, hey, do you know about the uh, baby farmers? And he goes, what's that? And I said, well, in England, the baby farmers during 16th, 17th century and into the 18th. And he says, no, what's that? And so I told him, and uh, that is probably some of the passages that have really upset people. And what the baby farmers did, which you probably know, but for the listeners, they were women primarily, and they would advertise in the newspaper, said, if you have a child you can't support or you don't want, um, bring it to me and for a fee, and generally it was like 20 pounds, because we're talking hundreds of years ago, and I will raise your child as mine or I will adopt it out. And so these women would come, and they had a pregnancy, and they just couldn't have a you know, child at the time they couldn't raise. So they would go to these women, turn over their baby. Generally, they were under a year old. And they would pay them the fee, and they'd say, thank you very much for taking care of my child. As soon as they left, they would kill the baby and throw it in a, put it in a sack with a rock and throw it in the Thames River. And this was an unusual. Some of these women killed hundreds of babies that way, some perhaps thousands and he never knew about that, you know, being English and was in England. I said, yeah, and here's the people. And I have stories in there of three of the women, and all of them ended up, they were executed uh, for it. But it's just amazing that they, they just can't believe it when they read the stories. Um, and the other thing that surprised a lot of people here in the U.S. is that the vast majority of people have heard about lynchings back in the 1800s and early 1900s of white groups, mobs, lynching blacks for a variety of reasons that they thought these people deserved it. Well, as it turned out, uh, during my research, I came across many stories of uh, African-Americans lynching African-Americans, and those groups were lynching them for the same crimes that the white mob was lynching them for and it was really quite interesting when I I read that because there were groups of uh, if you want to say at the time some wealthy African Americans and they put together vengeance committees that kept crime and criminals out of their neighborhoods and uh, if something was serious uh, for instance rapes and murders and assaults uh, they would send out their group of vigilantes hunt that person down and hang them or take them out of jail and uh, hang them. So it was really interesting showing history that not only were the African-Americans being lynched by white mobs, but some African-Americans put together their own mobs, for a better term, and lynched African-Americans. Now, being fair, the numbers aren't even close. There were thousands and thousands of African-Americans lynched, and perhaps a few hundred uh, lynched by other African-Americans. But the whole point is that's part of history 
a very important part of history that the vast majority of people never hear. They've never heard that. And uh, I've gotten, oh, geez, dozens and dozens of comments from people about that saying, I never knew this. And I've got a, a couple of friends who are African-Americans, and I sent it to them. And same thing, they said, I never knew this. I never heard of this. And, uh, you know, it's part of history that has just been lost or uh, ignored over the years. But it's the both volumes really show you a piece of history that a lot of Americans have never known or they've forgotten. And uh, it shows you how, at the time, in many cases, justice was swift and unforgiving, and other times it wasn't. And what I mean by that is I came across stories where a person would commit a murder in, in whatever town it was out in the West or in the Midwest. They would leave uh, because the posse was chasing them. They never caught them. And a year or two later, they would come back to town, and everything was forgotten. And so it's, it's very strange when you read that and you say, wait a minute, the, they committed murder, so they should get them a year or two later. No, they just didn't. But if they captured them then, they either lynched them, or if they went to trial, there was no appeal, no nothing. There was a local judge, and he said, okay, uh, you're going to be executed uh, next Tuesday. And they would take him out and hang him. And so you look at the change within the criminal justice system from then to now, and you see they were very unforgiving in some areas, but then in other areas they were very forgiving. Um, and so it's just another, another phase of the American criminal justice system that people just were, or even today, they're just unaware of. And it makes you think differently about that time frame as far as how criminals and uh, victims were treated as opposed to today. So the, the stories are very, very interesting regarding that, and it, it tells you a lot about America at the time. Exactly. I mean, both volumes have such historical value that, you know, if you're, even though you might be obsessed with true crime, there's a lesson to be learned in reading each and every one of these accounts. But, you know, why do you think that even from – from back in that day to present day, because true crime is, is the most popular genre, whether it's podcasting, writing, books, blogging, any which way you look at it, people are obsessed and fascinated with true crime stories. Uh, why do you think we have such a passionate obsession? I believe uh, it's human nature and the curiosity of it. And some people they have a, a hard time believing that somebody could be so cruel. For instance, just recently, these mass shootings we've had, people want to say, how can somebody do that? You know, what sets them off? But going back to when I was a cop, uh, everybody's guilty of this. Everybody, if you've driven a car and you've come by a traffic accident, all of a sudden, whether it's a minor fender bender or a horrific accident, you have everybody bending their neck to watch, to see what's going on. The curiosity is there. And then you look at the news media. Quite frankly, 
if it bleeds, it leads. Because I, I learned that when I was doing the news. And uh, that's the way the news media is because people are fascinated by it. And I think it's because the vast, vast majority of people in this country are good people. They would never commit any crime, and especially not a vicious crime uh, such as murder and rape and so forth. And so when they hear that, they're fascinated by it. They're going, my God, I, I would never do that. Nobody I know would ever do that. What makes that person tick? What made them do that? And so I think that's part is the curiosity of the human psychic. And you look back, uh, think about some of the – like the O.J. Simpson trial when that was on years ago. It was watched every day by millions and millions and millions of people. They were fascinated by it because it was real. It involved a celebrity, and it involved two murders. Um, and that's the sort of thing that just seems to fascinate people. And uh, true crime, whether it's like mine from the 1800s or today, those stories fascinate people. They they really do, and you know, in in volume two, you include a section with short stories, and I I couldn't help but think back that this is probably the beginning of some of the tabloids like the National Enquirer and True Detective. I can remember you know sitting and reading True Detective for hours. Sure. It was just very entertaining. Um, so. It, I guess that's the beginning of it. They were a very popular way to read about crime and all the details, maybe not as, not as detailed as what you find in some of the articles that you've, you've curated, but still it, uh, it was, it was a, it was a good entertaining afternoon. <laughs> so, it was, it, I, I believe that's probably where a lot of them, uh, you know, when you're checking out the grocery store right at the newsstand, you have the various tabloids, and um, you look at the headlines, and, you know, it's either sex or death, you know, murder or something. That draws everybody. Exactly. But, yeah, when I was doing this, I came across uh, hundreds, maybe thousands, of short stories about true crime. And what was interesting is that today those stories would be on uh, – like 48 hours, maybe 60 minutes, and so forth. All the major TV shows, the major cable networks would carry them. And at the time, these were simply filler stories uh, that they placed into the newspaper. And they are, they're just fascinating when you read them because almost all of them, it was this single article, no follow-up, no nothing, and that was it. And... Um, like one, there was, I, I remember, uh, it's in the, this girl, she was walking by, it was in Arizona, uh, down near Tombstone, she was walking by this woodcutter camp that was uh, primarily uh, Hispanics and Mexicans doing it. So she gets back, tells her dad, the boy made some comment to her. Um, who knows what the comment was, and one said, but she didn't like the comment. So the father and his friends go down there, and they say, well, hey, that, and she points out, she goes, oh, that, that's him. And uh, so they had the woodcutters, the families, whip the boy. Well, they whipped him and killed him. And after he killed him, the girl says, well, you know, I made up the story. He didn't say anything to me. And it was, okay, that's, that's fair. Everybody went about their business. Um, and it's just 
craziness. And some of the things that were laws back then, um, one in particular, this dentist, he wrote a letter to this woman, young woman, in another city. Apparently he knew her, and she took offense at the letter. Well, if you took offense at something that somebody said or wrote back then, that was a criminal offense. So they went to the town, and um, they decided the dentist was guilty and that he should be horsewhipped in the middle of town. Well, the dentist wouldn't go for that. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to be whipped. So he's holding uh, two guns in his uh, dental office as the crowd's growing. So they, after a while, they finally talked to the girl, talked to him. They reached an agreement that he'll come out. He will apologize publicly to her for this letter, whatever he said, and then he'll leave town, but he won't be horsewhipped. And that's how it was handled. It was a criminal offense. And so you read some of these. They're, some of them are hilarious uh, when you start reading, but then other ones – you just scratch your head and you said, my goodness, uh, these people, some of them are really horrible. Uh, and these short stories were just that, um, very short. And one was in particular interesting, was an editorial from a newspaper that they thought it was wrong to make heroes out of criminals and make them popular people. And you look back, uh, that was in the 1800s, and you, you can see some of that today with major criminals, how they received letters in prison and so forth, and marriage proposals, um, and they basically turn into cult heroes in a bizarre sense. Absolutely, so, and, and you yeah. know, you've got a cottage industry with murderabilia and, you know, a lot of a lot of these people selling their artwork, you know, Charlie yes. Manson, and and you're right, they become cult heroes, and I'm, I would imagine it was there were several of them from back in the day as well. Um, one that comes to mind, especially, is H. H. Holmes. You know, I think yes. he was such a charmer to begin with, and and could be one of the reasons he was able to lure so many women into his murder castle. Um, and I know you have that whole story in there as well, yes. the accounts from from uh, journalists, which I found very fascinating. So, in you know, you've told us some of, some of the stories, but in your opinion, which one actually disturbed you the worst? What, what story that you found did you find to be maybe the most, chilling or shocking thing that you've run into? Oh, boy, there are quite a few. Um, I would say perhaps the most shocking was the baby farmers uh, because you, you don't expect women to be mass – I'm not talking serving murderers. I'm talking mass murderers of babies. You just don't expect that. You know, you – some people say, well, a man may do that, you know. And during wars, certain things have happened like it. But this is in peacetime, and they were doing it for a few dollars. And so that that was probably, I, I think, the most shocking out of all of them. Uh, but there are some very close runner-ups um, in there. And one one story that I really found fascinating uh, is that, I, I dug into the story, the background, and, and basically there was 
two sentences, three sentences in a in an article that said that this this woman she shot a guy, killed one, wounded another guy. She was on trial, and they found her not guilty. And I thought, gee, that's strange. It was out of D.C. area, so I researched her, and what I found was this woman during the Civil War she was running a brothel in Washington, D.C., and also an abortion clinic. And the girls she had working there were servicing some of the most influential politicians in the North at the time. But she was also a spy for the, civil, for the Confederacy, and she was captured a number of times dressed as a man going across Potomac to the Confederates, taking them medicine and other intelligence, she was captured by the Union. The Union then, uh, under the laws they had, she was a spy, she was to be executed. That's the way it was, period. And every time she was captured, the general who was in charge at the time down there would receive an order from the White House or the that time Secretary of Defense would be equivalent today, saying release her. He couldn't understand what was going on because they caught her several times doing this. Well, later on, as I uncovered, the reason being is that she was running the mistresses for all of these politicians in Washington, D.C., and a lot of the girlfriends of these senators and congressmen and so forth were pregnant, and they would go to her for an abortion. And so they were obviously afraid that if she was placed on trial, she's going to start dropping names. And that would not have been great for the northern forces uh, within Washington, D.C., under Lincoln. And it could have impacted the Civil War, but more so, it would have been uh, the end of the political career to a lot of senators and high-ranking officials and cabinet members in Washington, D.C. So that I found interesting. I said, oh, I see that, but then I realized, oh, wait a minute. Uh, from my background dealing government affairs and everything, I said, um, what she was doing is the same thing that goes on today. You know, the, a lot hasn't changed in Washington, D.C. in that respect, except they're, they're more cautious about their actions. And so that, I thought, was rather interesting. Here's a, a story from the Civil War, yet it's it's very poignant, and it applies today to, to many, many politicians. So We just don't learn, do we? <laughs> no. <laughs> the human nature in that respect doesn't change too much. No, it, it doesn't seem to. I think, you know, we, we tend to think it does, but we just kind of lay low or go, go low for a while until things come bubbling back up to the top again. Mike yes. Rossmiller, how can we buy your book, True Crime Chronicles? They're uh, all available on Amazon, and uh, quite a few are on uh, Barnes & Noble, but primarily Amazon. Very good. And you can also order directly from wildbluepress.com. So yes. how can we stay in touch with you online? Do you have a website, social media? N no, I don't, uh, because okay. it, that takes so much time. And it takes so much time away from uh, my research and writing that uh, I, I gave that up a few years ago. I totally understand. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> anyway, <Sure. laughs> well, listen, 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope listeners, please follow Imagine Publicity on air wherever you're listening to this podcast today for future episodes. Thanks again, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.